There are some outlines coming around. Can I have a couple guys help me with a couple things up here? What's up here? Just uh, got to do a little rearranging. Okay. All right. Uh, this table, like, so it's in the light here. And don't need this. Okay. We'll need this. We'll need this. Um. Is this sturdy enough to hold a laptop, you think? If you're right on top of it. It was, a, right here. It was holding Dan's earlier. Oh, good. So it should be good. Uh, Kelsey, I really enjoyed hearing your story. Um, and it reminded me of a prayer that I've just learned recently that has meant a lot to me. And, uh, and, and we're going to start with that prayer. O risen Christ, when the darkness around me is dark, show me the light of your face. When my darkness is too heavy, send the dawn. When I am dejected by your absence, remind me to offer my presence to someone. When I am hungry for nourishment, invite me to breakfast. When I have cast my nets on the wrong side of life, come to my aid. And when I do not recognize you, call me by name. Amen. Um, if you were at the breakfast talk after uh, yesterday, you know something of my story. Um, I'd and I've had some opportunities to share parts of my story with some of the rest of you around tables. Uh, but I want to share just a little bit uh, for those of you I haven't had a chance to tell here part of my story. Um, I've been married 38 years to the most amazing creature I have ever met. And I'm not just saying that. She is an astounding woman, and it's just so, uh, it so boggles my mind that I get to be married to her. Um, some of you at USC probably met her. Mindy, at the, at the right? That's her. <laughs> we have three children, ages 35, 33, and 31. They could not be any more different. It's hard to believe they were raised by the same two parents. <laughs> My youngest is 29, just got married. She's always been a daddy's girl. She loves her daddy. We've had a very special relationship all these years. Uh, my, she's the 29. My 33-year-old is an entrepreneur, uh, and he was one at six, age six. Uh, if you've read Tom Sawyer, that's my boy. 
Uh, when he was about uh, seven, I guess, one Saturday morning, he came to me. And we wouldn't let the kids go out and play until they'd done their chores. So he's, he said, hey, Dad, can, can you give me five minutes out on the street neighborhood before I do my chores? And I knew he was up to something, just that kind of kid. All right, five minutes. He goes running out the door. Five minutes later, he, the door opens up. He walks in with six guys behind him. They walk into the house, they turn right down the hallway towards his room, and I hear him saying, this little seven-year-old, all right, Jimmy, you put the Legos in the box, and Bobby, you make the bed, and Billy, you clean the windows, and, and uh, Jimmy, you, you put the dirty clothes in the hamper. Then he took two kids to the bathroom, and one of them was cleaning the mirror in the bathroom, the other one was cleaning the bathtub. But here's the best part. Best part. I would hear some of them complain, oh, Cole, why do I have to clean the bathtub? And the way he responded was just priceless. Oh, come on, Billy's not that hard. In just a couple minutes, we're going to be playing baseball. <laughs> just as natural as could be. And about five minutes later, all the chores were done, and they go all walking out behind him, out the front door, and they loved him. <laughs> That's my boy. My oldest daughter is 35, and uh, she's always been a handful ever since she was very little. Probably the most self or the most um, hard, whatever that term is, strong-willed uh, child I have ever known. And she gave Mindy and I a run for our money. Uh, when she was in uh, junior high, she was raped. And um, so I, I tell you that to, to tell you, if you don't know me very well, um, that tells you a lot about the, the fellow that's talking to you. Uh, sort of like hearing from Patricia. Um, and it wasn't just that she was raped, she was gang raped. Uh, we didn't, she wouldn't tell us what happened for four years. We just knew something horrific had happened and it sent her life just into a, about a 20 year tailspin. Um, she went off to college and graduated uh, with a Russian and international relations degree. Um, now she's at the University of Chicago getting a master's in sociology and she works for a, a large outfit downtown Chicago that works with rape victims. Um, from about age 18 to 28 we had a relationship with her that we just had to walk on eggshells all the time because she would get so infuriated or angry about something. She is a she is a self-described anarchist. You, you, you sort of have a picture of what in your mind. I mean, progressives are too conservative for her. Um, she is way out there. And so, um, <laughs> part of the, uh, there are times when I can talk politics with her because she does like to talk about that. But there are other times where that is a big taboo. And one of the, one of the sort of, We've, we've kind of laughed about this, she and I. One of the, the strange paradoxes about our relationship is that I am the poster boy of the enemy she is fighting. I am old. I am white. I am male. I believe the Bible and love it. I am a traditional marriage guy. I am a pro-life guy. I lead an evangelical church. I love our country in spite of some of our darker times of history 
And I think the Constitution was the most amazing political document I have ever read, especially in how it was put together. All of those things are just like nails on a chalkboard for her. <laughs> so it's sort of one of the crazy things about... So uh, enough about that. Let me tell you um, about two people. When I was in college, I, I went off to college and, and thought, I don't need church. I don't want to go to church. Uh, even though I thought I was a Christian because we grew up in the Episcopal Church. And in that world, generally, if you go to church, you just assume you're a Christian. So I just did the party life for about two years, went into a, my junior year a time of struggling with emptiness, which was very confusing to me because I had everything I always thought it would take to make me happy. Why, why am I, why is it seems like there's still something missing? My roommate is named Johnny. We had a little house off campus. I still do not remember how I met Johnny. <laughs> and I don't even remember how we became roommates. <laughs> It almost seems like God just said, oh, Seth, we got we to get a guy for you and just sort of plucked him and just... <laughs> he was a neat Christian guy. He wasn't, in my frame of reference at the time, he wasn't a Jesus freak, but he was just kind of a solid Christian guy that it was hard to get mad at. And, um, and I was the king of sarcasm back then. That's the house I grew up in. So I was, I was just extraordinary in sarcasm and just blasting away. You get ready to go to Bible study? Ha ha! You know, that kind of, you know. Just, you know. <laughs> and Johnny, bless his heart, never reacted one time to anything I said to him. Never told me to go take a hike. Never threw sarcasm back at my face. Um, what I didn't know was Johnny was sowing a certain kind of seed in my life that semester, my fall semester. About mid-semester, I met a girl named Kim that I was enamored with, I wanted to go out with, um, and uh, I asked her out, and it was sort of strange. I've never, I'd never been turned down for a date like this. Uh, I asked her for a date, and she said, well, 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 you know, Seth, I, I can't go. I was thinking, well, it didn't seem like it was that complex a question, you know. <laughs> uh, but as we talked, she said, well, I would like to go, um, but you're not a Christian. What? What do you mean I'm not a Christian? I grew up in church. I went, I, I believe in Jesus. And that began uh, a, a bunch of conversations about this. And I was just, I was just so confused about this. She wouldn't go out on a date with me. Uh, so I tried plan B. I said, well, what if I went to church with you? <laughs> Good enough. So I went to church, and as I've told some of you this week, it's the first time I'd ever been to a, a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. We had a little Scottish pastor, Peter McLeod. <laughs> little short guy. And uh, I'll never forget the first time sitting in a church and, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> 44, beginning in verse 4. I thought, wow, man, this is entertaining. <laughs> so we got, um, I went, and my first impression after hearing that, the, the message was, wow, there's, there's some good stuff in this book. And it made me wonder, how did I miss this for 18 years growing up in my church? And, uh, and I was curious 
uh, enough to go back, and partly because she was going to be sitting next to me. Uh, and we had conversation, then she invited me to a, um, a, a retreat uh, like this. There were about 300 students there. Uh, and if I have some time, some of you have heard my conversion story. Um, and if I have time, I'll tell you the rest. But uh, enough to say, both of those two folks sowed seeds into my life and different kinds of seeds that eventually uh, germinated, sprouted, and bore fruit. Uh, when, uh, this week, the topic is influential living. And Dan and, and um, Patricia have done a fantastic job of laying a very solid framework for how to think as a Christian in the world in which we live. And they've given you a lot of good ideas, too. So I'm going to spend less time this week on kind of framework kind of stuff, just a little bit. But what I really hope to be able to do is to give you a lot of ideas, kind of putting the cookies on the bottom shelf in the hopes that there'll be some things that you'll think, oh, I could do that. And be engaged in influencing your world. So a few little groundworks. We influence people from what to what? That's the first question. So in your handout, um, we live in a fallen world. It is a screwed up world. And the older you get, the more screwed up you, you generally see it. And there are three forces that you and I fight against as we're trying to bring influence into our world. Of course, Satan, he's busy around the clock with, with all of our lost friends, and he's busy with you and me. And he's a deceiver and a liar and a trickster and um, the accuser of the brethren, uh, the blinder of eyes, um, and he is very cagey. And he can just sort of dangle us along without hardly even knowing it's happening, moving us into to dangerous places. Um, so we fight that influence in our friends, but we also fight that influence in our lives. The second thing that we fight is the world's values. Uh, what the world holds is dear. And those values, if you listed them one through five, they're virtually uh, opposite of the things that we as Christians value and what the Bible values. And so we're, we're, we're sort of, uh, as you relate to people, you're sort of leaning into the wind against the forces of how the world thinks and what it values. The third thing we fight is sin. As you are trying to reach your lost friends, uh, probably most of you have discovered this is not just a knowledge problem. If I can just share, and your, Kelsey, your, uh, your example of conversion was a great example. This is not just a knowledge problem. I walk in, if I can share the gospel story, boom, they're going to get it. Because sin is so diabolical and it's so woven into our very soul. Uh, there's something in us that is arrogant. It, and though we may never say it this way, it says, I don't need God. Not really. You know, maybe if, I'm park, if it's Christmas shopping, I need a parking place. Okay. But in my daily life, I know what to do. And a pride and an arrogance and a self-centeredness. Um, that we are in a fight against. Influencing people is much more complex than it seems like it should be. Uh, here are a few biblical images. The biblical image that, that people are prisoners. From Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, the op to open the eyes that are blind. There is a blindness and a willful blindness 
that we're up against. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. And what you're going to find with some people, I am, I am just, sometimes I am just so overwhelmed at the misery with which some of my lost friends are willing to stay in just to hold on to some sense of control over their lives. That's what he's describing here in Isaiah. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Uh, captives of sin in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Not just talking about poor financially, but to people, all of us who are poor spiritually. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. He's not talking about political prisoners or prisoners of war. Notice he says, release from darkness, the prisoners. That's spiritual darkness. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty, and then notice some of the other images that are thrown in here along with captives and dungeon. Beauty instead of ashes. Your, your testimony, there are several times when the fire came roaring through your life. And all that's left is ashes. There's a remarkable story of bringing beauty to your life. This is what our God does. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. Some of you went to the Sequoia Forest yesterday. You hear what he just said? What you saw is a picture of what he's trying to make us. Me? An oak of righteousness? Are you kidding? <laughs> that will be the day. But it's true. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the place. Now, this passage has to do with uh, when Israel will come back in real time to its homeland, but it's also a prophecy that includes you and me. You and I will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated, mostly in people's lives, people's families. They will renew the renewed cities that have devastated for generations. Ephesians 2 talks about slaveries of sin. That's sort of influencing, this is what we're up against. This is hard, grinding, for the most part, takes endurance and a tremendous amount of love and perseverance with people. Uh, what are we trying to influence them to? Well, the big new story in the New Testament is the kingdom of God. And when I think of that, I think we're trying to really do three, three pieces of this. The first is kingdom salvation. That's these. We're trying to get people from the lost side of the ledger to the saved. Out of darkness into light. But as you all know, because of the ministry leaders that lead you all, uh, we're not done. The second one is kingdom living. Uh, and this is trying to help these folks now align their lives with God's truth. This is not easy. Uh, when I became a Christian, my dating life was, was, was terrible. Terrible. And trying to align how I related to women after that was a fight. And they, I needed some guys to help me with this and to hold me accountable and to pray for me. 
Now, over the course of, of my many years, even being married, how I relate to the opposite sex, I still have to have times where I realign myself with my boundaries and walls and the fences that I voluntarily put in front of me, partly for my sake, but also partly for the sake of, of uh, my wife and my children to protect the testimony and, and my name and my reputation and my testimony, as well as the people in our church. Uh, that, that alignment goes on all of our life. Some, some of it's aligning finances and fi some of it's aligning uh, business, as uh, Dan was talking about. Uh, this third thing is kingdom values. And here I think about the long process of sanctification, of taking the, the things, the desires uh, that I started with and being able to see that not all of them are good. Some of them, the New Testament calls deceitful desires, and some of these desires are called evil desires, but both uh, deceitful desires especially and evil desires can just sort of creep into this ball of desires and therefore seem not all that bad. It's a fight. On and off, on and off, on and off through the course of my life, there have been times of renewed brokenness, and the renewed sense of grace and that I am a beloved child of the king who loves me in spite of the spiritual screw-up that I have proven to, been, to have been over and over and over again. Now, we are at war in this, as the, you often hear in the metaphor. And yet, one of the things that's so strange to me about the war that we are in is what, um, what weapons do you think God would give us to fight this war? And today and tomorrow, I want to tell you about one of the kinds of weapons he's given to us. Has anybody got a vacuum cleaner? <laughs> Somebody's not going to be happy that I did that. You know, you just don't always think these things through like you should have. All right, now you can follow along in your outline if you want to, or you can follow along uh, in your Bible. Uh, turn to uh, Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of his house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. And here's one of them. A farmer went to sow his seed. And some of them, man, I'm really going to get in trouble here. Some of them he threw on the path. <laughs> and, in the heating, and in the heating vent. <laughs> and the birds came along. Flap, 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 flap. <laughs> Breakfast! <laughs> the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places. 
where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly. Where did you quickly go? It sprang up quickly. Because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. They withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among the thorns. Which grew up and choked the plant. The fight for soil, the fight for fertilizer, the fight for water, the fight for sun, they lost. Till other seed fell on good ground. said some of these things you don't think all the way through okay. <laughs> but it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown that's the picture he gives them now these guys are a little slow like me and so he has to explain and spell it out which he does when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart this is the seed sown along the path I had a guy share the, the four spiritual laws of my freshman year in college. I listened to the whole presentation. He read the prayer at the end. He said, does that express the desire of your heart? I said, yeah. He said, we want to pray it now? Any reason? I said, no, sounds good. Prayed the prayer. Now, he was way more excited about this than I was. And then we sort of, that kind of it, and then he kind of left. And I remember sitting there in my dorm room thinking, I think something is supposed to happen. It was kind of fuzzy. Um, I think I was path that day. It seemed like the birds just flew in pretty much after he left. I remember thinking, this is what I thought. I'll give this a week and see if there's anything different. At the end of the week, it appeared to me that there was nothing different. And I just kind of went for another two and a half years. Now, that was the path. The one who receives the soil on rocky places is the man who receives the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, it lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. I, I can't come to challenge tonight. I, I, I've got to finish a paper for tomorrow. I can't go on the retreat. I, I, I should really work on midterms. Uh, Bible study, you know, maybe next week I'll come. There are just other things in this person's life that are more important to them. Uh, or the deceitfulness of wealth, and you heard that in a lot of Dan's stories. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. 
he produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times. Now, those are the four different soils. If you've tried to be a part of non-Christians' lives, you've probably experienced all four of those soils. It's easy as a Christian to think, it seems like all the seeds I sow are in three of those. Sometimes that's how it seems. On the back of your handout, I want to, this is where I want to camp. There are different types of influence, or as I think of, different kinds of seed. Now, obviously, in the parable, the seed is God's word. No question about that. But as you share the Lord um, with people, there are other kinds of seeds that you and I sow uh, that help people along the way. Uh, the kind deeds or actions that you do, I mean, example, or the kind of words that you say or encouragement that you give or words of comfort when somebody's grieving, or I, th I didn't put this in your notes, but if I was you, I'd write down this next word, story. Story. That is the easiest way into somebody's heart. And sometimes that's asking them about their story, but if they're hesitant, then the approach is to tell them about your story. And as you start to tell them some of the parts of real life story, times when you're empty, times when you're lonely, times when you're discouraged, times when you're sad, times when you're heartbroken, uh, you will find sometimes ice beginning to crack in people's hearts. You'll have people's attention. That's not always true, but a lot of times it is. The attitudes that we purvey as we're around people and the seeds of suffering, you saw this in spades with Pat this week. Man, what an opening she has with people. All she has to do is look at you with those eyes, and you just know she's got a story, right? Tell me about your story. Now, I want to give you a bunch of examples. I'm hoping that some of these will, will resonate with you. Uh, oh, I want to say something about Paul, Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul goes into his world to do. What does he first go to do? He goes to the synagogue. Why does he go to the synagogue? He knows the synagogue world. He knows the Old Testament scriptures. The people he's going to will appreciate the Old Testament scriptures. That's a couple of reasons. But also, he's going to a place where there's repeated contact with the same people. They're getting to know him. He's getting to know them. Thanks, story. Uh, in your world you have places where you have opportunities for regular contact with people. Obviously, classes uh, or labs. Uh, if you're in club meetings other than challenge uh, or intramurals, you're in these. Um, when I, every time I go to USC, Neil takes me over to the food court and we have dinner. If I was a student there again, uh, I would be thinking, am I going to eat, eat, eating some breakfast here or some lunches here or dinners? And I would try to eat breakfast at the same place, lunch at the same place, you know, a different place, and I have my dinner place. And as you're going through, through the course of the semester, I'm in the food center, I'm trying to get to know the people that work there. Now, this is not rocket science because they wear a name tag. <laughs> Even somebody with as terrible a memory can, can sneak a peek and go, oh, yeah, Sally. Hi, Sally. <laughs> um, and then... Almost anything you say is better than what they normally hear. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for your smile today. I'm getting my cup of coffee, 
And uh, it's so delightful just to chat with you for a minute. You are sowing seeds in your words and in your attitudes. Uh, I, um, we had a, uh, new neighbors move in next door last fall from India, uh, fluent in English. Uh, they have a, f- a fifth grade boy, uh, just a delightful kid. And uh, his dad bought him a used basketball net, one of those portable things you roll out, except it didn't have a net. And so one day, he and I and the fourth grade boy, uh, whose parents are Chinese, are playing horse out there in the cul-de-sac, playing basketball. And having a great time, except it's getting dark. It's getting so dark, you can't tell if you made a basket or not, because there's no net. So a couple days later, I go up to Big Five Sporting Goods and buy the biggest net they have. And when I came home, the next time I ran into him, the fifth grader, I said, hey, I got you something. You did? Got you a Christmas present. Now, I'm pretty sure they don't celebrate Christmas. But he has the concept, Christmas and presents. Yeah, I got, I got you a Christmas present. Well, when can I open it? Well, not till Christmas. Guess what happened in that little fifth grade boy? He's looking for me every day when I come home from work. Is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas yet? So um, I decided that I was, we were waiting so long, it was now cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> and the Constitution says that that's a, that's a, that's a right. Um, and I'm a Constitution guy, so... So I came home, and, I, and he was out there with his, his fourth-grade buddy, a uh, family from China. I said, uh, hey, you want to see your Christmas present? Yeah! So I went inside. I brought out this, this box like this. I said, now, do you, do you want to just, you just want to look at the present, or do you want to open it? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and both of them were like, you know, and so they opened up. And, you know, you would have thought I had given them the treasure of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> oh, look, we got a basketball net. We got a basketball net. I ran and got my ladder. I'm up on the ladder putting the thing on, and these guys are just going. And, uh, and they say, we'll get that and say, hey, you want to play horse? Yeah, let's play horse. About a week later, I uh, run into the dad. He's getting ready to go to work. I'm going to go to work. And uh, he said, he's kind of sheepish. And um, we, we've become good friends, you know, and he, but he's kind of sheepish. He said, you know, Seth, thank you so much for, for getting him that basketball net. I kept thinking I should get the net. But every day, it was just like I was too busy or I forgot. I said, you know what? I'm glad you were busy. I'm glad you forgot because I had so much fun giving that to him. He is a very special kid. And I'm sure you are very proud of him. Yeah. About a week later, I ran into his mother. She's coming out to go off. And um, uh, I say to her, uh, you know, I've gotten to know your son out here playing basketball. He is a very special young kid. I'm sure you're very proud of him. And she said, I know, you told him that. I told the son that about two weeks before. You told him that about two weeks ago, and you told my husband last week. That's all they talk about. My wife, Mindy, <laughs> gave her a great chuckle last week. The, the doorbell rang, and I was out doing some gardening work in the backyard. Doorbell rang. She went to get to the door, and when she opened it up, both of them said, Can Seth come out and play? 
you ever want to have some fun, um, get about $10 bills, $1 bills, and a roll of scotch tape, and go to the aisle in the grocery store where there's candy. Some of you mothers are not going to like this. And tape a dollar bill just sort of periodically down the aisle, about the level that a little kid in a basket can reach over and grab. And then just kind of stand at the end and just kind of pretend you're looking at something and just keep an eye on the fun that's about to ensue. <laughs> One of the places I go for breakfast uh, once or twice a week is Corner Bakery. I've gotten to know the manager. One of the assistant managers uh, and all the girls that work the breakfast shift uh, out front, and Felix, who's the main guy who, who delivers the food to the tables. And, um, but I've never met the cook. How do you meet the cook? Because the cook is not only behind the front counter, but he's behind that next counter kind of thing and back there. And so I was trying to think of this, and how can, how can I get to know the cook? And so, so, um, I finished breakfast, and I walked up to one the assistant manager that I had met about a week before. And um, I said, uh, and, and kind of was, I understand, I'm kind of toying with her a little bit. I said, um, I said uh, you see that guy back there at the, at the, uh, in the kitchen? She said, yeah. I said, he cooked my breakfast. Now, if you're the assistant manager, what do you expect you're going to hear next? And she kind of, you could tell, she kind of braced herself to hear. And I said, you know what, that was a great breakfast. I just love that breakfast. And then I pulled a dollar bill out of my wallet. And I said, would you give that to him? And tell him it was a tremendous breakfast. And then tell him this exact words, my compliments to the chef. Now, this is not rocket science. Even somebody like me and you can do this kind of stuff. She looked at me like I had just come in a spaceship from Mars. <laughs> and then she broke into a big sigh of relief and a grin, and she said, I'd be glad to. Uh, last summer, we had uh, one week that was really hot where we live in Irvine. And uh, if you're a soccer parent, you're out in that heat for a miserable two hours. And uh, a few of us got together a red wagon, a bag of ice, and a bunch of water bottles. And we just circled a couple of the soccer fields where all the parents were sweltering in the heat. And we were just passing out cold water bottles. Now, what do you say during times like that? You know, well, you, you, you may have rocky soil. You may have thorny soil. You may have good soil. You just don't know. And, uh, and all, the, all of them random and just saying, so it's things like, depending on just how you sense you should do, Thank you so much for being here for your kids. They will probably never forget someday that you were here when it was 100 degrees. You know, God bless you. Just quick, short. In our church, everybody knows I'm a terrible cook. If I ever show up at your apartment or dorm with food, run! <laughs> we had a guy that had three back surgeries and different people were taking over to church, and Mindy was supposed to take it over, but she's a kindergarten teacher, and it's a tough year for her. And uh, she said, could you take food over? And so I went to Stonefire, my Stonefire Grill, my favorite place to cook, and picked up, <laughs> picked up the food, knocked on the door. The woman, who's about 10 years older than me, said, I came to bring you dinner. 
I wish you could have seen the look on her face. <laughs> oh, and then she saw, and, oh, then I, I had the presence of mind to, to, to I said, stone fire, you know. <laughs> and uh, she was great, re greatly relieved. <laughs> if you have a friend in the hospital, a lot of times we think, oh, I don't know if I could go to the hospital. I don't know what to say. I don't want to say anything stupid. Mostly when I go to the hospital, uh, I go there to listen. And I'm just to be there sitting in the chair with the person. With, 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 with. Presence, presence, with. Do you talk? Do you listen? Do you talk to the patient? Do you talk to the loved one? You never know when you walk into a room like that. All I know is I want to be a blessing to whoever I'm talking to while I'm there. And so I might start off with something really profound like, how's your day been? There are some people that want to tell you about their medical condition, what the doctor said, and you listen. And there are some people uh, that are so sick and tired of being in the, in the hospital and doctors and all that stuff, that's the last thing they want to talk about. <laughs> so you just follow their lead. And then the loved ones are there. It's the same thing. How has this been for you? It's about as innocuous a question as it just tells anywhere you want to go, I'm all ears. You are sowing seeds of care. We had some college students who were preparing for midterms, uh, and they came to church on Sunday. Uh, and when the guys were getting ready to leave, I, sh I gave them a, a box, a, a dozen donuts from our local donut store. You, you know, it's kind of like the kid with the, the basketball thing. The guys are like, wow! You know, now, now, you're supposed to save these for tonight when you're studying. <laughs> you know, I, I doubt they survived the trip home. <laughs> I've been in plenty of coffee shops where there's a long line and you hear somebody behind you, one or two or three places, on the phone having a difficult conversation. I get up to Pat, get up my coffee. I'll tell the person, the, the guy in the blue shirt, three people behind me is having a tough day. I'm going to give you an extra $5. Cover his coffee and tell him I said God bless him. For five bucks? Or a dollar to the cook? We had a guy that moved in across the street uh, a couple years ago. He was weeding his front garden. I hate weeding. I got out my little weeder tool, went over there, sat down next to him, started weeding. Oh, you don't need to be doing that, Seth. I know. I don't need to be doing it. But I've weeded enough gardens. I know, I know how terrible this is, It's rotten it is. And if I help you, we'll get done in half the time. What we're talking about today is sowing seeds. Let's, there we go. A few years, we got, years ago, got to go to Africa. I took, I took about, a, this, about a bag this full of Skittles with me. <laughs> and like the seed, I would yell out in the morning to the villages around me, Paramende, which is candy. Paramende, and all around, from all the villages around, you'd see these kids running through the fields. <laughs> Open up a bag. Whoosh. Whoosh. 
Go to the next one. Is that the last Africa one? One more? Okay. Let's do that one. I have it on good authority that you and I are seed sowers. You don't have to go to Africa to be a seed sower. Um, where's my laptop? Oh, behind me. I'd like to finish just with a poem I wrote related to this. Where's my poet guy? Who was that? Yeah, right there. If it's a bad poem, don't tell me. <laughs> it's called Brokenness and Gardens. I like to imagine my spiritual growth like a beautiful garden where flowers bloom forth. But all too often what I actually see is a lot of barren ground, a few sprigs, maybe. Must the flowers once cut sprout anew from terrain? Does my heart's soil need to be turned over again? My own heart's garden, dry, barren ground. Just how do fresh flowers get birthed underground? I'm not my heart's gardener, now I remember. Our Heavenly Father's the real vine dresser. I'll yield to his rototiller. New seeds and tomb to germinate and sprout, bud, flower, and bloom. Over and over, a new spring planting, seasons of spiritual growth ever renewing. You can't skip brokenness, the fresh tilling of soil. Oft times happens amidst life's toughest turmoil. My part is to sow the seeds and give away flowers. Beautiful colors that to others inspires. From seed to soil, with rain and sun in his time, a beautiful garden will bloom. Oh, quite sublime. Let's pray together. Uh, let me have a couple guys uh, to, to this, get this out of the way for, so our worship team can, uh, while I'm praying. Let's pray. Father, this is important stuff. And as Dan shared so well this week, uh, we have a high calling. And there are times when sometimes it just seems so futile. Casting seed that lands on thorns or rocky soil. But you are the one that makes the growth and allows little seeds to germinate and sprout, bud, flower, and bloom. Would you help us to accept the bag of seeds and the very many different kinds of seeds that are available to us and help us to learn how to be seed sowers? Uh, let's sing together.